Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. The Oakland Unified School District Board will consider a resolution tomorrow that calls for dismantling the district's dedicated police department. The move echoes similar efforts in other cities, from Minneapolis to Chicago to Los Angeles, as well as San Francisco and West Contra Costa County here in the Bay Area. One group, the Oakland-based Black Organizing Project, has advocated for nearly a decade to shift resources from police officers to social workers, therapists, or counselors. And studies show that Black and Latino students are disproportionately disciplined more than other students, which advocates say is an extension of racism and criminalization of people of color. Meanwhile, police officials say that even if Oakland eliminates its department, schools will still need police to respond when students are victims of crime and abuse. We'll dive into the debate over school policing and joining us for that, Roseanne Torres. She's a board member with the Oakland Unified School District and co-sponsor of a resolution to eliminate the district's dedicated police department. Welcome, Roseanne Torres. Thank you. Good morning. I'm glad to be here. Good morning to you. Glad to have you with us. And we also are glad to have Jamoke Hinton-Hodge, a board member also with the Oakland Unified School District. Good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you. And I'll also say good morning to two other guests we have on this panel this morning. Aaron Kupchik, who's sociology professor at the University of Delaware and co-author of The Real School Safety Problem, The Long-Term Consequences of Harsh School Punishment. Welcome, Professor Kupchik. Good to have you. Thank you very much. And we'll also welcome Mo Kennedy, who is Executive Director of the National Association of School Resource Officers. Good morning, Mo Kennedy. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you, and glad to have you all aboard here. Roseanne Torres, I'm going to begin with you because actually you're the co-sponsor of this with Shanti Gonzalez. It's going to be putting uh, this forward tomorrow, presumably, and would last until December 2020. Why is it vital in your judgment to remove the present police presence, or at least to diminish it, and... uh, move resources over to, well, psychologists and uh, others who can help with behavioral problems, social workers, and so forth? Uh, Well, there's a lot of issues that make this important, and I think that you just touched on it in regard to your guest, who is also going to speak on on his expertise of this long-term effects. And so I became uh, familiar with BOP when I got on the board, which was January of 2013, A few months later, I received a study that they had presented about the contacts with police by young youth of color, and the frequency of contacts leads to a more increased rate potentially for incarceration. And so having been a criminal defense attorney at that time, I don't practice in that area of law anymore, but having been a prosecutor and then a criminal defense attorney, I definitely met with many, many clients, hundreds of clients that had incidents with police that oftentimes led to an arrest without reasonable suspicion, without probable cause. But because these young men of color had been dealing with police since they were as young as 12, you know, they had a different attitude than say someone who has never really dealt with a police officer because they haven't been constantly, you know, stopped and questioned or stopped and frisked. frisked. And so the fact of the matter is that when I joined the board and I, I was a mother of a 12 year old in middle school at the time in Montero uh, middle school, I was not aware of the amazing student leaders. And we are lucky in Oakland to have student board members that serve. Not all districts have student board members and we have something called all city council. And I went to many of their events over these eight years. And one thing consistent was We want to stop the school to prison pipeline. Now, delving into what that really means was the work of BOP as far as, you know, I was uh, working with uh, as an attorney with adults um, and learning more and more about 
students and how they were feeling going to school if there were potentially police on the on the campus at the parking lot so on and so forth I know if I pull up to my home and there's a police officer right next door at the neighbor's home I'm wondering I'm worried I'm curious now to go to school every day and potentially you could see a police officer on your campus because we had our own police department that was stressing our students out. And this was a lot of times um, young ladies, right? Stressed out going to school. Um, we know we have neighborhoods in some of our schools and I, I represent Fremont. And our chief of police, Jeff, Jeff Godown has said, you know, we have had numerous calls that we have to respond to, but it's actually adults going onto a campus. It's actually adults across the street, maybe with a weapon or selling drugs. And so oftentimes, that fits the criteria for the city of Oakland's police officers, because that's not even in the campus. That's not even on the campus. That's a threat to the campus, right? And so we, as taxpayers, we have a police department and I served on the Measure Y committee. Oakland struggles as a city to keep its um, police officers employed. They train here and they leave. After two, three years, they go somewhere very different like Lafayette, San Ramon, Orinda very quiet communities. So we have to do a better job of keeping our police officers, training our police officers and getting, you know, getting this city a grasp on this city. Right now we have a fireworks problem. Every night is a fireworks show across Oakland. Nothing's being done with that. So we know we have to do a better job and our small police force of under 10 officers for 84 schools is not necessarily what principals and teachers are telling me since this resolution was created that that they can rely on 10 officers they might also be dealing with teachers who are calling the police because they have their own implicit bias and again students who are white they're reporting that they don't like the way a teacher has an implicit bias towards a black or brown student in class that's affecting a white student's mental you know status too that they're treated differently than their peers. And so having police in a city like San Ramon in the school district would be unheard of. Having the police in Orinda school district would be unheard of. So I think it's time. Our students deserve as many of our dollars and resources towards mental health professionals, restorative justice coordinators, college counselors. They're going to be first generation to go to college. That's a big juggernaut of an issue to figure out. And a college counselor is something that they need to orient for that transition. A lot of our students, about 700, graduate, thankfully, but they have no plan. Well, Sam, excuse me, I think you've laid out pretty well why, yeah. why the advocacy is so strong here and the passion behind it. And uh, I'd like to bring uh, Jumoke Hinton Hodge into this, who's also a member of the board and is going to, I believe, support this measure, but has some concerns. Uh, what are those concerns, Jumoke Hinton Hodge? Um, yes, and thanks so much for the opportunity to be in this conversation. And, and there's been incredible advocacy um, across. And I think what um, you know what what we're what we're lifting up, and yet I don't know if we're we're calling out deeply enough, is the issues of white supremacy in our culture, or the issues of anti-blackness that are within our culture. So my, what my experience has been um, over the years in working in youth development, working with women and children, I have had the experience of working in San Francisco, for example, that has a specialized um, police force, a, a domestic violence police force where um, officers are trained specifically to respond. And so in this particular case, we actually have a very specialized force. It's about seven officers and a chief that, um, and to Director Torres's point, they, they actually are responsible for the periphery of our schools. They're there to make sure that nothing actually enters into our schools. And so when there's lockdowns, when there's shootouts in communities, our police officers are actually kind of the first line. When there are ICE officers that want to come in because we're a sanctuary school district, it's our police officers that are kind of at that front line. So the um, idea that um, in some kind of way, our small police force is going to um, eliminate the prison, to, the school to prison pipeline. Um, it's just, it's, it's, it's not realistic. Um, criminalization happens in the classroom. It takes a school leader, educator to actually call the police on a student. Well, what we by something, excuse me, that Roseanne Torres said uh, about uh, Officer go down, Jeff go down, because I know right. that he said that there are about 300 actual crimes that occur over the course right. of about a thousand that are reported okay. each year. 
So that your concern would be with those kind of crimes in terms of keeping the present force intact? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, there are issues with students bringing guns on campus. There's, I mean, there's issues of, you know, adults coming on campuses and having fights, right? And so the question becomes, is a, is a social worker the person to do that intervention? Um, and I think what has been um, sped through in this process, and I know it's on the energy of um, the uprisings around George Floyd and, you know, a generation of saying no more, um, that we're, we're, not, we're not moving at a pace to really look at our plan and really think about what makes sense. Um, maybe there are incidents where we should not be calling police officers. You know, um, I get concerned about, for example, 5150s. When you look at our data, it shows why police are called in. And so the question becomes, and I'm not a social worker, but d does one have to have the 5150 kind of ranking in order to get services? I've heard that before. Um, maybe, maybe there's a way to work with students voluntarily to make sure that they get help if they are in danger to themselves or to others. But it, it, it's important to disaggregate the data and really look at it. Um, and I'm not an abolitionist uh, um, at heart around police. And so it, it's my growing edge. And I feel like I've been learning a lot and thinking a lot about that and listening. Um, however, I think I'm much more in line with um, reforming. Um, and I think that in fact, if, if you wanna look at a, a police force that is uh, community-based oriented towards who it serves, um, you're talking about our police force. And so um, I hope that we don't later say we should do community policing after actually um, getting rid of um, a, a group of folks that 80% are people of color that are on our police force. Um, more than 50% of them actually went to Oakland Unified School District schools. And so what better than these folks that are, um, you know, a part of law enforcement as a career. Um, so Clearly, we have issues of police brutality, and, and we have to address those. Um, but again, criminalization starts in the classroom because it takes a teacher to um, call the police on a student. And so we want to know why that happens. Excuse me, Jumake Hinton-Hodge, I wanted to identify you again as a board member with the Oakland Unified School District. Also, I have uh, Adam Kupchik with us in this discussion. He's a sociology professor at the University of Delaware, has done a good deal of research on this. And the research seems to point out that uh, well, in, in many respects, I suppose, uh, this idea of using other resources is maybe a good idea to shift because of the criminalization of young people as you see it? Absolutely. Yes, there's been a good amount of research uh, on this very topic. And, you know, it, it's certainly it's complicated. Uh, there are positives and negatives to having police officers in school. Um, I think I would agree with what uh, then your next guest is, is I'm sure going to say, Mr. Kennedy, and I've spoken about this. and. and Certainly, you know, I agree that most school resource officers are well-intended people who, you know, add additional layers of, of mentoring into the school environment, um, but, and this is certainly beneficial to have more mentors, but it's not clear why they need to be police officers who are doing that mentoring as opposed to people who are trained um, much uh, more, more fully in adolescent development or childhood development who can hold the confidence of a child who, uh, say, for example, is concerned about a friend's criminality uh, and so on. Furthermore, the, the evidence, there are a variety of points. One is that there's really no consistent evidence showing that the presence of police officers in schools, the presence of SROs, prevents crimes, including shootings. Uh, the evidence is, is fairly mixed. Uh, Historically, that was one of the reasons why police were brought onto campuses, right. because of school shootings, yeah? Absolutely. Uh, the majority, well, first of all, we have very little knowledge about what prevents shootings, uh, it, because thankfully, I know it doesn't seem this way, but they're so rare. Um, I know that uh, they're, they're horrific events that garner great attention, as they should, but the most recent year, for example, that the Federal Department of Education reported data for was 2015-2016, in which there were 18 student homicides at school. So it's, schools are, are, are very safe places overall for students to be. Um, and so that makes it hard to, to study, thankfully, uh, what prevents shootings. Some shootings have happened in schools with an SRO, and some have happened in schools without an SRO. In terms of the more everyday forms of violence and student misbehavior, a majority of studies shows that police officers in schools, this is careful research controlling for um, you know, what the school was like before the SRO came in or comparing similarly situated schools, majority of schools studies find that schools with SROs, SROs, that there's no effectiveness in terms of preventing crime. But there are harms that come. 
Uh, those harms include more arrests of students, particularly for minor crimes, not for major crimes, but we're talking about um, disorderly conduct, resisting arrest with no underlying charge, often just the result of an argument with the police officer, um, and particularly for students of color. Emerging research is beginning to show that black students in particular are more likely to uh, feel that the, the, this arrest effect uh, with the presence of an SRO. We There's also, also a disproportionate, uh, disproportionate suspension. I, I was just getting to your research again. Disproportionate mm -hmm. suspensions and expulsions mm -hmm. of black and brown students. Uh, and, and I guess your argument is that it also probably impedes learning. It creates an environment of hostility and fear where uh, students don't feel safe because of police officers. Is that right? To some extent. I, I think it's much, much more subtle. Again, the vast majority of school resource officers that I've had the uh, honor of studying have been really well-intended people who, who aren't creating active fear in the minds of kids. Um, but that's not true universally, as we've seen across the country. Certainly, communities have, you know, are, are responding against police officers, uh, that police officers are perceived as a threat in many communities. But the effect that, that I've noticed in the schools that I've studied and that other research has found is that the effect is more subtle. When you have a police officer in school, it's a, it's a helpful resource for a school administrator. And I've seen, observed firsthand that school administrators learn to trust that SRO to handle a whole variety of potential problems from, you know, responding to a student who is, you know, acting oddly um, to deciphering whether something scrawled on a bathroom stall is a, a real bomb threat. And what happens when they rely on police uh, to, to address these problems is the school becomes slightly more a place of law enforcement and slightly less a place where our primary concern is students' social, emotional, and academic needs. And again, Aaron Kupchik is sociology professor at the University of Delaware, and we should clarify that Oakland has its own school district police force, not talking here about the Oakland Police Department. Uh, also, Oakland school police only show up when called. They're not stationed at schools. That's according to the chief. Uh, let me go to you, if I may, Mo Kennedy. And Mo Kennedy is executive director of the National Association of School Resource Officers. Uh, and get you on record here in terms of uh, why SROs are necessary or why, uh, particularly in light of, l l let me just give you an example. Uh, we heard from Professor Kupchik about how many are well-intentioned, but you also hear these uh, stories that are the extreme of the opposite. Uh, for example, uh, our own local Jill Tucker, who writes about education for the San Francisco Chronicle, uh, and this is a national movement, by the way, to remove SROs and remove police, wrote a story about a five-year-old boy who was handcuffed in Stockton in 2011, a young African-American boy handcuffed uh, and taken away. And there were other incidents in Florida with a six-year-old black girl taken away in handcuffs. I know these are extreme and they may be uh, aberrant, but nevertheless, they are the sorts of things that give people concern. And you say what to that? There is so much to unpack here. And I've listened carefully to the other three guests and, and a lot of valuable information. And first of all, I will say this. Um, it, is it, you know, maybe the question here is, is it good to have uh, police in schools or not? And I think the answer comes in this. It depends on why they're there. When we talk about a five-year-old being handcuffed, is that concerning? Yes. And so it probably goes back to the foundation of why are they there in the first place? And, and, and here's the thing. Uh, I, I realize that Oakland has its own school police department and, and school police departments are certainly uh, a unique thing. Uh, most officers that are in schools are, are not working for a school-based police department. They're working for the local school district, I mean, I'm sorry, the local law enforcement agency. And they're in the school in partnership with the school district, that partnership being between the school district and the law enforcement agency. And they should be there as a community-based policing approach. I heard one of your other guests speak about community-based policing. And, uh, you know, it, it is, I'm, I'm a firm believer in community-based policing. I was a law enforcement officer for 25 years. Half of that time I spent as an SRO. And I've seen the value of this firsthand. Uh, one of the things I can tell you is that we, uh, as an organization, we train uh, in all different parts of the country and around the world. California is a state uh, where we don't get the opportunity to do a lot of training for uh, for whatever reason, they, they tend to do their own training there. So I can't speak to how Oakland school police officers are trained if they're trained in the SRO triad concept. Uh, there's a federal definition of an SRO, and it, it includes right in the middle of the definition 
the aspect of community-based policing in that school environment. One of the things, and I think this is very important for us all to understand, uh, and, and NASRO teaches this on day one of our basic SRO course, school resource officers should not be involved in formal school discipline. So when we talk about and, and we look at uh, you know, conversations about tying discipline to arrests, it shouldn't be so, not with SROs, because they shouldn't be involved in school discipline. And on the flip side, uh, I heard uh, discussions about disorderly conduct. It, that, that, for instance, should be one of those misdemeanor issues that there's rarely an arrest for on a school campus. Quite frankly, uh, school administration should be able to handle that uh, you know, with proper disciplinary practices. Uh, so SROs re really shouldn't be involved in that. And, and a good SRO, I can tell you from our thousands of members, uh, really want to be a filter to arrest. One of the things that concerns me, if we, if we continue to move toward this, this push of, of getting good SROs out of schools, then you are going to wind up with a patrol response and that's probably going to be a patrol officer in many cases that doesn't necessarily have a relationship with the school. So it's going to be a little bit different process, maybe a lot different process for how they handle that, as opposed to an SRO who may be serving as a filter against arrest. I think one other important piece of data that we all have to keep our eyes on is the data around juvenile arrest in this country. Uh, we just got the 2018 data from the U.S. Department of Justice last week, and that shows a significant downward trend across this country in juvenile arrest from 1996 through 2018. Uh, it's a significant decline from around 2.5 million to closer to 600, 650,000. That's a pretty significant drop. Actually, I if I may jump in here for a second, Mo Kennedy, that drop has been used as an argument on the other side. That is, uh, there was a 2019 ACLU report that said nationwide 14 million uh, in schools with police, but no counselors, nurses, psychologists, and social workers. So the argument goes, if you have a reduction in crime, maybe you can do much better in terms of impeding this kind of behavior by getting behavioral experts as opposed to police officers. But I'm coming up on a break, and I want to get listeners involved in this, and I want to hear what your thoughts are, those of you who are listening. Uh, criminalization of students, school-to-prison pipeline, or maybe the best notion of having a supportive environment and having uh, behavioral experts as opposed to either independently hired police officers or SROs. You can join us and I invite you to do that now and be part of the program and you can do that by dialing in to our toll-free number. And the number to call is 866, uh, excuse me, uh, number to call, excuse me, if you're listening and have comments, uh, you can join us at our toll-free number. Uh, let me give you that number. It's not coming up here. Oh, here it is. I'm sorry. 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email. Any comments or questions you have to forum at kqed.org. You're listening to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. You're listening to Forum on KQED Public Radio. I'm Michael Krasny, and we're talking this hour about a resolution that will go in front of the Oakland School Board tomorrow. The resolution has to do with police on campus and whether the police should be on campus or whether about $2.8 million should be moved into other trained uh, people who can come on campus and help with problems, particularly behavioral problems. But there are, of course, crime problems and problems of domestic abuse and uh, problems of uh, weapons being brought onto campus, those kinds of things that have to be dealt with. And so the argument goes, and we've heard both sides of that argument now. You can join us, and I invite you to do that. Our toll-free number is available to you. It's 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email. Any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. And with us is Mo Kennedy, Executive Director of the National Association of School Resource Officers, Aaron Kupchik, who's a sociology professor at the University of Delaware, and Jamoke Hinton-Hodge, a board member with the Oakland Unified School District, and Roseanne Torres, also a board member with the Oakland Unified School District and co-sponsor of a resolution to eliminate the district's so-called dedicated police district. Here's a comment from Tim who says, if police officers are removed from schools, won't vulnerable students be the first to suffer, whether from physical bullying, theft, assault, extortion of lunch money, or other problems? 
Same question applies on a larger scale to society. For example, aren't the majority of victims of black criminals other black citizens? Reducing police presence has, has to be thought, uh, uh, done thoughtfully. I wonder if you could respond to that, Roseanne Torres. Roseanne Torres? Did we lose Roseanne Torres? No, I'm here. Sorry. I yeah. didn't realize the phone put it on silent. Um, so I think the main thing that, again, speaking with the people in the schools, speaking with principals, teachers, my own cousin is a teacher in deep East Oakland at a high school, a freshman uh, class. And she has many students who have special education IEPs or 504 plans for anxiety, PTSD, having come here from another country in, in Central or South America. You know, our students have a lot of needs. A police officer does not have a master's degree in social work or it doesn't have a degree to be a therapist. The teachers, the principals, everyone at the front office needs training and we became famous. And then I feel like we let that work go as far as not challenging ourselves to expand it uh, as far as restorative justice, restorative practices, mindfulness training, right? When, when Director Hinton Hodge says we have an anti-blackness culture, that's what I'm being told. And it isn't just white teachers, right? It may be other cultures that are not accepting of diversifying their school where it's you know heavily Latino or it's heavily Asian or what have you. We need to redo the system and not be reliant on police officers. When you have about eight officers for 84 schools, you can't rely that they're gonna come and intervene. And if there is a 5150, having been an attorney uh, who's dealt with clients who've been arrested when they called for an ambulance and police came and arrested them, but their family called for an ambulance, they should be known by the police department because they have to do that often with a family member. The police are not gonna be able to handle a 5150 other than handcuff them, take them away. An ambulance will take them to the hospital, the particular hospital they need, which is for mental psychiatric breakdown. So again, it comes down to the training, it comes down to the skills, and if we rely on eight or nine officers to run around all over the city when things are going on, that means the rest of us can atrophy those, those traits that we need to really support students who are coming into the building. And we know because one of the fastest growing student body since I've been on the board only eight years is newcomers. Newcomers from all over the world where things are bad, where there are gangs, where there are killings, where students didn't even go to school. So they come in to high school and they're actually at elementary level reading and math. And so they have a lot of anxiety around that. You know, They don't need more anxiety when they're not even a documented uh, citizen to have police coming Excuse me, Roseanne Torres, so you're t when, when you talk about things like uh, mindfulness and I guess anti-bias training, restorative practices uh, in terms of restorative justice, these would be in lieu of having police. That would be part of in the safety of plan. Correct. The safety plan that now has really come to the fore because of this resolution. And as I've said to people, ripping this Band-Aid off of having to employ police officers when in the context of being Oakland, our own city should be supportive of what we need when we need it in emergencies. Right. And, and they should be just as trained and they have a different budget for police. So pulling this Band-Aid off is a cancer, and cancer can't be cured with a Band-Aid. Everything that comes after this is the safety plan and the details that need to go into it. And well, Rosanna, excuse me, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but we have Jackie Byers on the phone. Yeah. I want to get her Great. into this discussion. Great. Jackie yes. Byers is Executive Director of the Black Organizing Project. And Jackie Byers, welcome to the program. Good to have you. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning to you. Um, now, I know that the Black Organizing Project has moved forward on a number of issues, and it was this is long before all of the present concerns uh, because of the killings by police. Uh, you focused on this for actually nearly a decade. What's changed in that time? Um, well, we've been working. A lot of things haven't actually changed in that time. We've been working for 10 years because we understood uh, that we needed to uh, address this critical issue. We needed to call for police-free schools. In 2011, when a young man named Rahim Brown was murdered at the hands of the Oakland Unified School Police Department, 
we began to start looking at the issue, researching the issue, and we found that evidence showed us uh, not only was it traumatizing for uh, students, particularly black students, to have law enforcement on campus, uh, but we also understood that it contributed to the school-to-prison pipeline through uh, school push-out, expulsions, and suspensions. So we began to address the issue. We did a lot of research. We uh, worked on uh, uh, reforms, but we always understood that the only way to really have a restorative and new culture and transformation was to remove law enforcement. And clearly we're in a moment where uh, a lot of folks around the country agree with this. Uh, folks who have been working on this issue for years in cities across the country, including Denver, but also uh, there is a moment where everyone has recognized that we can no longer continue to hold on to the status quo of the harm it's caused for our students and our families and our community, and then say that at the same time we're working on healing and restoration. So, yeah, forgive me, uh, this has become a national movement. I mean, not only in Minneapolis, but also in Portland and Seattle. And uh, I know there's been a lot of work that you've done in getting the budget reduced from 10 to $6 million, but also uh, getting a new complaint system and a monitoring system for arrests and suspensions and expulsions. That's not enough. We have to get, a, at this point, you really have to move forward with abolition, I guess, right? Absolutely. We always, that was always the goal. We understood that uh, during the period of 10 years, there was things that we noticed when we started uh, looking at the district, we understood that there was things happening, such as uh, there was no space for folks to really complain um, around the issues of law enforcement. There was no data collection that was consistent. Uh, we understood that uh, we needed to, there was a situation that happened, for example, where uh, the city of Oakland Police Department, um, the superintendent at the time, uh, cut a deal with the city of Oakland to ha bring in uh, OPD under a COPS grant that has since expired. But at the time, uh, we that was done without community involvement or even school district board oversight. So we intervened and we created an MOU that had restrictions and a simultaneous board policy. And we did all that because, yes, we wanted to find a way to mitigate the current harm, but we also understood that the goal was never to just accept policing as part of our school system or our ecosystem, that we needed to always call for the removal. Um, and that's always been the goal. And we actually, in 2011, said that in 2020, we would remove the Oakland Unified School Police Department, that we would have police-free schools, and that we would work towards transformation, which means cultural change. It's why we've partnered with the teachers' union and created a Black Sanctuary Pledge, because we understand that everyone has to be held accountable and be part of the solution and not complicit in it. So we are working on both ends. We're working on the elimination of law enforcement in our schools. We're working on the transformation of the current staff that we have um, and, and looking at different solutions besides calling law enforcement on children. So the vote is tomorrow. And uh, like you said, the teachers union is behind you, but you've got about a couple dozen principals who are not. How do you read that? Uh, we have a uh, at least uh, 40 principals that are. So yes, there's always going to be some people that are afraid. There's always going to be some people that have stress and anxiety. We found that for 10 years. And if we, if we gave up just because people had anxiety about old systems, letting go of old systems, we'd all still be under segregation. We understand that any movement requires people to go into the unknown, to believe in the community, to believe in the people, and let go of systems that don't work. And, Jackie Byers is executive director of the Black Organizing Project. And Jackie, good to have you with us. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Let me get a caller aboard with us. Judy, join us. You're on the air. Actually, the old, the real old system, um, the, the police are fairly new in the Oakland School District. 15 to 17 years ago, I was uh, the rep in California, um, California School Employees Association, um, and we represented the non-police security staff at Oakland Unified School District. And there was quite a fight to stop the um, layoff of all of those very long-term trusted non-police um, non uh, security staff at Oakland. And we lost that fight. And in came the police into the Oakland Unified School District. And I would also vent venture, and I'm 
totally against having police near children, especially with the lack of any trust that we look at in our society today um, by um, children of color. Um, uh, but I, I uh, would also venture to say that um, I also represented school districts in Santa Clara and Marin County, and you do not see um, police in, in um, upper-class white school districts in California. Um, they are handled. Go back to Jamoke Hinton Hodge on that. Uh, Jamoke Hinton Hodge, she's right about that. In some of the uh, exurban or suburban areas, you don't see police forces. Right, because you don't have a predominance of African children. I mean, it, it, you know, every, everyone's right in this. Everyone's absolutely right in this. And I, and I agree that this is a movement, it's not a moment. And in order for it to be a, severe, a serious moment, it's got to name white supremacy is what we're interrupting. And so my amendments that I, I'm, I am totally available and open now to this process just because of, of, of all the elders and all the counsel that I've taken, right? And looking at this situation. So we, we, can't, we can't just demonize police officers or security officers, but we need to, again, we need to look at this board of education I mean, this is this is a board of education that next week will also take a vote on how we how we spread or resource bond dollars. And in that conversation, there become conversations about how a predominantly black school doesn't necessarily deserve it. So I my point is you can't talk about one aspect of this and not really look at the root cause. So my amendments are going to be about implicit bias and training for everyone. The the the, the OEA was supposed to go through restorative justice training last year after a rigorous strike and a contract, and not all of them have gone through restorative justice. So it's my expectation and demand really, frankly, on community partners to hold them accountable around that work because it's in classrooms where this starts. It's in, it's in the air. Is yeah, your emphasis is. has been all along on, on teachers and the importance of uh, their role. Absolutely. You don't use police to do disciplinary actions. You don't I call agree. the police on Jamal when he steals something from you. In fact, I you agree. figure out why is it that Jamal isn't engaged in your classroom. Uh, let me get this opportunity to bring another caller on here from Oakland. Mike Kelly joins us. Good Welcome. You're on the air. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Okay. Thank you. Yeah, so um, I'm a former administrator in Oakland Unified School District, um, 20 years, um, I, and I've seen police come into the district. Um, and I've seen students, as soon as they walk on campus, the trauma starts, right? I mean, you know, f from just, just having to do with police in the past. Um, I do believe that what Jamoke Hinton Hodges said, there needs to be training, but there also needs to be a relationship with the, with the police. Because you're gonna have you're gonna have students who sometimes bring guns on campus. You're gonna have melees that sometimes schools can't handle. But do police need to be directly on campus? No. But if you have a staff and a staff that's not prepared to deal with melees, if you have a staff that's not prepared to deal with students who get out of control, what are you gonna do? And that's where the training comes in. I think there is implicit bias in the district against African American students, against Latino students, students of color. Um, I've seen it. Right. Even myself, being an African-American male, there's, impl there's implicit bias, you know, being a former administrator. Right. So I do agree with most of what, what everyone's said on the panel. But I think th the key is just the relationship has to be better between the community and the school district. And the training has to be fostered within the district. I was a proponent of um, restorative justice and it worked fine in my schools. It took a while. Right. To implement that. But I think once everyone understood it and once everyone implemented it, it worked well, right? So I just think that you, you, need, you, you need these things um, in order to have success in schools. But, yes, police are an extension of, and a support of the community. They're supposed to be. They're an extension of the white community, right? They call them when they need support. But police are not, they're not trained to deal with a student who – you know, who lives in, say, you know, the flatlands of Oakland, right? Um, there's going to be a disconnect. And, and that's the issue that exists when a police comes in there. 
Yeah. Mikhaila, you're raising an important issue here. In fact, uh, let me bring that issue to the fore here and uh, go back to Mo Kennedy on it, because uh, I'm looking, I saw a tweet here from a listener named Anne Marie who says, community-based policing sounds constructive. However, do the police live in the community? Are the police members of the community? That's a big issue, Mo Kennedy. Yeah, I think that it's a huge issue. And, you know, quite frankly, as as I listen to this play out, not just in, in this show, but over the last few weeks, it, it is the large metropolitan communities that right now are grappling with this. Uh, and it's an interesting thing that um, we haven't gotten to do a lot of training, quite frankly, with the metropolitan uh, police departments or the, or the school district police departments in large cities. And so I'm not sure how much of the whole SRO triad concept is being followed. Community-based policing has to be at the heart of this. And part of that, part of that does involve being a part of your community. When I became an SRO, I lived outside of the city where I worked, but I immediately knew the importance of moving into the city so that I was a part of that community. An SRO is more than just a cop on campus. They, if they're doing the job the right way, they are building relationships. The caller mentioned relationships. It's key and being a part of the community can really, really help that. And Aaron Kupchik, if I go back to you, I'm um, looking at some comments from listeners. Uh, I'm going to read one from a listener named David who says, safe and nurturing schools environments uh, begin and end in the classroom. We should be focusing this energy there. If we do remove police from schools, we'll need a solid plan that will address the high volume of calls from teachers and principals. Those calls will still happen unless we train our teachers and principals to do otherwise. Removing police from schools will not improve teaching and learning. What does the research show on that score? Glad that I got brought up uh, because what we know from the research is the best way to reduce student misbehavior and crime is by working on school social climate, making schools inclusive places where students feel valued, supported, where they have relationships with teachers and other students. Sometimes uh, police officers, uh, certainly my research in the past has found that in some ways they can make the climate less inclusive, uh, not more inclusive. So yes, we need to equip teachers. We, can't, we shouldn't just pull SROs out. We need to uh, equip teachers with the training they need. Um, as other panelists have mentioned, restorative justice practices, positive behavioral interventions and supports are just a couple of programs now being widely used with great success. Um, we need to make sure that uh, teachers know what they should be doing. In some jurisdictions, for example, over the last several years, there's been a, an effort to reduce suspensions. But some jurisdictions did this well, where they replaced suspensions with other forms of more inclusive discipline, where we're not kicking students out of school, but we're instead engaging with them and trying to help them deal with whatever is causing the behavior. Other schools just did nothing instead. And that led to even more problems. So the answer is to not to do nothing, but instead to respect students, to build a climate, to uh, build communities rather than over-policing. And again, Aaron Kupchik is sociology professor at the University of Delaware. Let me read some comments that are coming in. Daniel writes, I attended the Chicago public schools in the 90s. The thing that really bothered me about seeing the police officer on campus was why are we spending money on a police officer when the educational mission is so very clearly badly underfunded? Our school was not the safest place. Students died from gang violence. I believe that if we had spent the money focusing on educating or counseling students, we would have made a better investment. And Susan writes, over the years, there have been excellent social, emotional curricula in some Oakland schools. These teach empathy, anger management, and problem solving. The solution is not just removing police. It's focusing on the skills that help youngsters to be safe and competent citizens. And let's bring another caller on, Eldridge and Half Moon Bay. Good morning. Join us. Good morning. Uh, I have a comment, and um, it's, to me, it's like everybody's looking over the real, well, they're not looking over it. Um, however, it's like I've heard comments that, that was said, uh, Every a lot of people are saying, let's train the police officers. I don't think that the police officers necessarily need more training because no one has to train them on how to handle white people. No one has to train them on how to handle a white kid in school. It's only the, the kids of color that gets the, the, the brunt in society and in schools for the police officers. So the training is, is not it's systemic racism that we're dealing with here, institutionalized racism. I mean, it's 
and it's obvious to me, and it should be to most people, that if, if they needed training, somebody would have to train them on how to handle white people when they encounter white people. Somebody would have to handle their, have to train them on how to handle a white kid when a white kid do something wrong. But they handle them with decency and respect, and that's what we're asking for. It's like um, I think that society should be glad that we're not asking for for uh, for revenge instead of just saying give us our equal share because. Um, this thing goes a lot deeper than, than the surface that when everybody's saying, oh, give them training. They need, it's not training. They, that training that they got, they got it from home. They got it from society. They already trained on how to handle black people and handle them, with, handle them as rough as they possibly can. Elders, let me get to your argument. Uh, I want to get your argument over to Mo Kennedy and get his response to it because uh, he's executive director of the National Association of School Resource Officers. Uh, how do, you, how do you respond to what Elder just put out there, Mo Kennedy? Well, uh, th- there there are two things that that uh, actually three, but we'll just discuss two. And because I I'm focused on school based policing and SROs, that's that's what our association does. And one of the things that we're very clear with departments about those that we have the opportunity to train with is that when you put an officer in a school, they have to be carefully selected. So this maybe even gets back to law enforcement overall, we got to make sure that, that people we're putting in uniform and given that authority that they are very carefully selected. Now, one problem that comes into play is recruiting and recruiting has been difficult over the last few years. So, you know, getting those quality candidates, regardless of where they come from, that that can be molded and trained properly how how to work with with every citizen regardless of race, ethnicity, culture, whatever community they're in, uh, you know, I, I, I can't imagine us getting, us getting to a point that we're looking for law enforcement officers to always be able to completely fit the race or culture of a community. I'm not sure how we logistically do that. I, no, I, but just, I think the caller was suggesting that the racism is so systemic that perhaps uh, they're trained more to deal against black and brown kids than to deal uh, supportively. Yeah. As a 25 year veteran, I I, I never was trained how to deal with one race or group of people in a different way. It was, it was training. Maybe training is the wrong word. Maybe bias, inherent bias. Implicit bias is an issue. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Let me get another caller on here from Oakland. That's Nelda. Nelda, join us. Hi, I am a teacher at Oakland Unified School District, and I really want to thank our board members for considering and for pushing for this that the Black Organizing Project has been fighting for for years. My question is, what is the vision for the direct redirection of these funds? How will the money be spent? What will we do in our schools to help our schools become safer and to reinforce the community safety that we all want for our kids? Well, we've touched on that a little bit, but let me go back to you, Roseanne Torres, uh, and have you at least uh, outline what the vision is here more. So, so earlier there was a comment about, um, you know, utilizing the great work that happens in our schools by community partners. We have nonprofits serving our students that have greater need than what the school can do in the six, seven hours that they're in class. And so that was something of an amazing uh teaching moment for me that when I started going to different schools, I saw the different after-school programs for all of the different things that the students need because the principal, the leader of that school has the, the discretionary use of the budget that they're given to, to fund different programs, whether it be something at recess so that students are guided, whether it's something after school as far as tutoring and working through homework and places where students are stuck. Those organizations I think need to be at the table around the safety because they're in the schools, right? The teacher has a lot to do already. They, the restorative justice coordinators at a middle school called Edna Brewer that I represent in district five, that RJ coordinator is amazing. And my principal was rather new three years ago and said, you know, if we lost that RJ coordinator, it would change everything at this school because not only is he so dedicated to the students, and so invested in the community, being from the community and being a man of color, 
for students to see, right? But also they use peer tutors or peer RJ coordinators. So that's among the students learning to handle their own struggles, to handle their own issues. And that's what a community is supposed to be about. We shouldn't have to reach for 911. We should be able to solve these issues within a school building when it's not something of physical harm and danger, right? Weapons, drugs, so on and so forth. So I think that we have enough partners who can sit at the table, which is what I've discussed with the superintendent about the safety plan. What is the cure for the cancer in this district? And, and, and once the police are not here, we won't have something to fall back on that, that is 911 calling the police of our school district. Nowhere else in the Bay Area do they have a, a police department within a district. We Let me have, just insert here that the superintendent is behind this resolution. I wanted to mention that before we have to say goodbye to all of you, which unfortunately we have to do now, but I want to express my thanks for your being with us this hour. Roseanne Torres, again, is a board member with the Oakland Unified School District who co-sponsored the resolution to eliminate the district's dedicated police department. And Jamoke Hinton-Hodge is also a board member. She was with us this hour. So was Aaron Kupchik, sociology professor at the University of Delaware, and Mo Kennedy, executive director of the National Association of School Resource Officers. You, our listeners who are with us, I thank you for being with us. And thank you, those who called in and uh, expressed your own opinions and concerns and questions that you raised. We have another hour of forum that's up ahead. I hope you'll stay tuned for that. We're going to talk to Janet Napolitano, who, of course, has been the head of the UCs now for seven years. That's next. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.